As you all know, we've been in this series called Rise Up, and we've talked in length about the prophet Ezekiel. We've been talking also about the Babylonian captivity in the last three or four sermons. And if you've not heard any of those sermons, I suggest that you go look it up, go online, go on our app, and try to watch those and try to catch up to see where we're at, because we're going to try to, we'll, I'll try to do a little bit of introduction throughout the sermon, but mainly I want to move on and get to the meat of the, what God's trying to say. I will try to stay on course here this morning, but I must confess the longer I study, the bigger and the broader this topic keeps getting, and it seems like there's no stopping point whatsoever. However, I'm just going to try to unveil and deliver to you what the Holy Spirit's main objective is for us here today. And I will try not to expound on everything that our text is about, because I want to tell you, the more that you study, the bigger it gets, as I said, and that's very hard on a pastor, because when you see a nugget, a spiritual truth, a hidden or tucked away word, uh, it's hard just to pass it by without speaking on it. There's so much revealed truth that I have learned that I have never seen in the book of Ezekiel in my studies before, and I want to just preach everything, and you know, I just can't do that. I only got a certain amount of time here this morning. So we're going to try to stay focused on what the Holy Spirit is trying to say to us here today. Our text is coming to the close of Ezekiel's life. It's believed that he's, he's, he's uh, this text is written during about the 26th year of his exile. Uh, 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 and Ezekiel, as we know, was in captivity for five years before he ever become a prophet. And his total ministry was 22 years, leaving us a total of 27 years it, that Ezekiel was actually in captivity. So this tells us that the 26 years was about one year before he would pass away. Well, as we all know, Ezekiel never left captivity himself, but he and his wife both died right there in the land of Babylon in captivity. And Ezekiel was 50 years old when he died. Yet we see on two different occasions during his captivity that he was taken by the Spirit back to Jerusalem to the temple. Now I know what I just said to you, kind of sometimes you wonder why would God allow such a man like Ezekiel only have 27 years of ministry and that he would die at the age of 50 years old. That's kind of hard to understand. I don't even understand that myself. He never left Babylon. Him and his wife were buried there, but yet he does leave in the Spirit on two different occasions and we've been talking about those. I actually believe whether, you know, some talk about how that he wasn't actually carried away by the Spirit to Jerusalem and others say it was only a vision that he's seen, but most scholars say no, that he was picked up, he was carried there in bodily form, and then he went through the visions of the temple, and that's what I actually believe. But regardless if it was a vision he saw or whether he was actually transported there, we know that it was done by the Holy Spirit. How many recognize that? Whether he actually went there in bodily form or whether it was visions that he's seen, it's not, it's not that important. But there's one thing that is important, that everything that happened to Ezekiel at that point in his life was by the Spirit. As a matter of fact, let's listen to the scripture concerning the first visit one more time that we used as a text several weeks. In chapter 8, verse 3, it says, and he put forth the form of his hand and he took me by the lock of my head and the Spirit lifted me up between the earth and heaven and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem to the door of the inner gate that looketh toward the north where there was a seat of the image of jealousy which provoketh to jealousy. And regardless whether it was the visions he was caught up in or whether he was actually transported there to Jerusalem, we know prior to the spirit, prior to this, uh, yet 
we know prior to this that the spirit picking him up, there was no spiritual activity happening in Ezekiel's life at all. I want you to understand that. All of a sudden, out of the middle of nowhere, five years into his captivity, the Holy Spirit comes and picks him up. But prior to that, he's just sitting there doing nothing. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that he and his wife built them a home by the river Chabar, and there they dwelt. This is what people do when there is no spirit. They lose hope. They conform to the surroundings around him, around them. They give in and let their circumstance dictate to them their lifestyle. And then they die due to no revelation. For five years, they just made the best of their captivity. They just settled within their exile. And it wasn't until the visitation of the spirit and his call to become a prophet that he was awakened to the possibilities of Judah's return back to their homeland. Up to that point, there was no hope. Up to that point, he had no belief at all that he would ever return or the people would ever return back to Judah. And matter of fact, can I tell you this morning, you and I need the Spirit. We need the Spirit at the Palace of Praise. I said, we need the spirit at the palace of praise. There is endless possibilities in the spirit, but where there is no spirit, there is no life. And Ezekiel had no life until God came on the scene out of the middle of nowhere and boom, there it was. How many is ready for a suddenly in the house of the Lord? How many is ready for God just to appear? To God just minute? How many is ready for God to rock your world? How many is ready for God to come in and open your eyes to things you've never seen before? Well, get ready because the Lord has promised to me that is exactly what he's up to in these last days. Life is in the spirit. And this is why that Jesus said in John 6 and 63, it is the spirit that giveth life. The flesh profits nothing, but the, the words I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. This is why that Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3 and 6, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter of the law, but of the spirit for the letter killeth, but the spirit gives life. I want you to understand here today that it is the Spirit of God that brings life to a church. We need the Holy Spirit. We need not to quench Him. We need not resist Him. We need not to grieve Him. We need not to ignore Him. We don't need to reject Him. We at the Palace of Praise need to open our hands up and surrender to the Lordship of the Holy Spirit here this morning. God wants me to preach on the Holy Spirit here today. Do you remember what it was like when you were void of the Spirit? You were empty with no hope, dwelling in darkness, no enlightenment, and being ignorant of the promises of God, and, and you had no revelation at all. Well, I want to tell you, that's not the will of God for a, a people to be roaming around in darkness, feeling their way through, trying to find some kind of answers. God is the answer, and he can illuminate us, and he can reveal to us by the power of the Holy Spirit exactly what we need to be doing in these last days. We're not children of darkness, but we're children of light. Can I have an amen? We're we're not people of carnality. We are people of the Spirit. Born again, led of the, as many as received him, to him gave he the power to become the sons of God. And who is the sons of God? Those that are led by the Spirit. Can I have an amen? Give the Lord praise that you're a child of God here today. <laughs> 
I tell you, what we need is a visitation of the Spirit. We need a fresh manifestation of the presence of God. The church of God today needs the Holy Ghost just as much as Ezekiel needed the Holy Ghost. Can I tell you, the churches that resist, quench, and grieve the Holy Spirit, they are churches that conform to an empty, powerless religion that becomes idolatrous in nature. Because where there is no restraint, where there is no convictions upon the conscience of man by the Holy Spirit, man will give away to idolatry just like Judah did every single time. You can count on it when we sit back and resist the Holy Spirit and we're not hungry for the Holy Spirit and we're not hungry for the things of God, we will become idolatrous in nature. We'll be self-sufficient within ourselves and we will become idolatry. It'll be idolatry in the face of God. The people became so blinded and darkened to the point that they didn't even know, even realize why they were in captivity. Their conscience had become seared by hot iron. They had no discernment of right and wrong and it led them to the practice of idolatry and the behavior of all the abominations that took place in the temple. And they said, God does not even see us. They had come to believe that God had not even seen what they were doing and that he wasn't in control. They even said that God is not even in control of the earth anymore is what they said. After the call and the manifestation of the spirit which came upon Ezekiel and his vision to become a prophet from that moment on, Ezekiel became known in scripture as the prophet of the spirit. When you look in the commentaries it's always Ezekiel, the prophet of the spirit. The prophet of the spirit. Now I know all the other prophets were anointed as well, but why did it call him the prophet of the spirit. There is over 54 times that the spirit is referenced to Ezekiel by himself. Not just the nation of Judah, not to the children of Israel, but to Ezekiel himself. 54 references that reveal that Ezekiel had the spirit upon him or in him or touched him at one particular time. They're found in words like Ezekiel 2 and 2, the spirit entered me. Then Ezekiel 3, 24, the spirit entered me and set me up on my feet. And then Ezekiel eleven fifteen, the Holy Spirit fell upon me. Ezekiel eleven twenty four, and the Holy Spirit transported me. Ezekiel thirty seven and one, the Holy Spirit came upon me. And forty nine times he uses this phrase: the Spirit of the Lord came to me. There are fifty four different similar references concerning the Holy Spirit upon and in or with Ezekiel. If there's one thing that I want us to have is a Repetition. The Spirit of God is with the palace of praise. The Spirit of God fell upon the house of God. The Spirit of God lifted them up. The Spirit of God entered into them. The Spirit of God touched them. The Spirit of God blessed them. The Spirit of God, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God. That's what we need in the house of the Lord. Oh, God, help me get into this preaching this morning. Then there was our text last week of him being picked up by the lock of his head and carried in his vision to the temple. That we just read it to you in chapter 8, verse 3. You know, there's times in the book of Ezekiel that it don't make sense, but it appears or it looks like that God violated Ezekiel's free, freedom of choice. That he violated his free will. Now, we always say God will not violate man's free will. Well, I know that's true when it comes to salvation. He's not going to force you to be saved. But I'm not so convinced that that is always true with every aspect of our lives. I'm sorry to say that, but we've always said it, that God's a perfect gentleman. He will not intrude. He will not force you to do anything you don't want to do. I don't know that I agree with that terminology. Come on, somebody. 
you know what I have found out? God is a God. Uh, God is God, and he, he, don't, he, he can do anything he wants with any, anyone he wants at any time that he wants, and he don't have to ask anybody for permission. Amen? He can cause an Nebuchadnezzar to go out and eat grass like oxen and cause his hair to grow like feathers and his toenails and fingernails to grow like the claws in order to get his attention. Matter of fact, you know, God may not force his will upon you, but he can be quite persuasive. If you don't believe me, ask Pharaoh of Egypt. The wording that he used in Ezekiel 8 and 3 when it says, And he took me by the lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between heaven and earth and brought me to Jerusalem. That term, he took me by the lock of the head. You know what that means? It's the same as he pulled my hair. He grabbed me by the head of my head of my hair and put, picked me up. Amen? It seemed like that God got a little violent here with, uh, with Ezekiel. It seemed like that God got a little aggressive or tough with him. He just picked him up by the head of the hair. He said, come on, you're going to Jerusalem. Picked him up by the head of the hair and pulled him up and said, come on, you're going to Jerusalem. I don't think that Ezekiel had much of a choice at that time. Do you? Amen. It's just like my father when he used to speak to me and I wouldn't listen. Maybe I had selective hearing at the time, you know. He'd always come up and he'd say, he'd have enough of it. He'd come up and he'd grab me right here. Has anybody ever had their dad grab me right here and pick up? And then all of a sudden, he, you, you're doing this. He's taking you wherever he wants to take you, and he's letting you. You see that? Yes, sir. You see that? Yes, sir. Pick it up. You see that? That needs more. You see that? You see And sometimes I believe God does his children the same way. I think sometimes even though that in nature we want to do it, yet there are times we get lazy. There's times that maybe we don't understand. Maybe we have selective hearing. But I believe that there's times that God comes and gets our attention. And I think there's times that God moves us when we don't want to be moved. Come on, somebody. Listen to what Ezekiel said in Ezekiel 3.14. So the Spirit lifted me up. Say, the Spirit lifted me up, took me away, and I went in bitterness and the heat of my spirit, but the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. Ezekiel had a reputation that I always want to obey the Lord here. He wasn't always eager or fast to yield to the spirit on, in his life. This is a prophet that we're talking about. Ezekiel's like most of us in this building, even though he didn't get, even though that uh, he didn't get blessed for what he was doing because he had a bad attitude. He went in bitterness, yet neither did he get cursed or corrected because he had good enough sense to obey the Lord. There's times I want you to know that God calls us to do hard things and he demands things that's difficult for our fleshly man to walk out and to follow through with. There are times that God speaks to me to do hard, hard things. He does you too. Some of them are in Scripture. He says, pray for them that despitefully use you and abuse you. He tells you if someone smites you on the right cheek, turn the left also. That's hard. He tells you to forgive the unforgivable, to love the unlovable. Could I go on? There's things that God's commanded me to do in, in my lifetime, to go places, to speak to people, to do things, to minister to people. And I have to admit, there's times I may not get blessed for it because I went in the heat of my spirit. I went in bitterness. I didn't like it, but I went. What caused me to go? It was the hand of the Lord that was strong upon Ezekiel. There are times when God just causes you or calls you to do a hard, difficult thing. I think there's times when it's hard for us to obey God, but God overrides sometimes our free will and drags us along and fulfills that call in our lives anyway. Do I really believe that? Yes, because deep inside, he sees in us a true heart of us wanting to obey him. And the Bible promises us in our weakness, he's made strong. 
Do you know there are times that God has forced me, compelled me, convinced me? He wouldn't leave me alone until I fulfilled what he was asking me to do. Have you ever had God just come and sit on you? You know what I mean by sitting on you? He pins you. You were wrestling and he just sat down on you and pinned you and said, when are you going to say uncle? Amen. Me and my brother would always wrestle. Me and my middle brother, man, I love pinning him. And, and I, 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 he'd say, all right, I'm done. I'd say, say please. Please. Say uncle, uncle, can't get up. Come on, say please again. I'd just rub it in. My older brother then would come around and grab a hold of me. Can't say please. He'd put me down and wipe me out real fast. But sometimes God comes down and he sits on us and he doesn't allow us to move. He pressures us until we're willing to obey what he's called us to do. You know where we're at right now? We're in the pressing moment where God's beginning to stir people up. And we always want to shout about the moving of the Holy Spirit. But there are times when that spirit moves you into hard places. It moves you into difficult places. It causes you to become something you don't want to be. And that is a person of sacrifice, a person that's willing to die out to himself, a person that's not thinking about his own agenda, a person that's willing to put others before himself, a person that's to love this, that's unlovable. Come on, somebody know what I'm talking about? Now, what the Holy Spirit's doing right now, he is conforming us to become in the very image of the Son of God that we are predestined by the power of the Holy Spirit that's being pressed upon us. Can I have an amen? This is the power of the baptism of the Holy Ghost in our inward parts, compelling us, pushing us, and he convinces us to do something that's even beyond our own capability ourselves. Can I tell you, we don't, we don't do it in our own strength. It's, it's in the strength of the Holy Spirit that we do what God wants us to do. Can I tell you, this is why Ezekiel said, the hand of the Lord was strong upon me. In other words, he was very convincing. He come, he picked him up by the head of the hair, and the hand of the Lord was so strong upon him. It is only by the Holy Spirit that we can give ourselves fully over to the Lord. I cannot even offer myself as a living sacrifice if it wasn't for the helping and the prompting and the desire and the love of his affection that he set upon me to cause me to do it in the first place. Amen? And in my weakness, God's going to say, I'm going to work my work to you. He which begun a good work in me, he will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Some of you are worried about your walk, and you're wondering why you're at where you're at. The, the faster you yield and say, uncle, the greater you're going to go into your destiny. Some of you are being pinned right now. God said, and it ain't a pleasurable place, but God is putting pressure upon the palace of praise. And he's walked into this place and said, you are called to be my remnant, and I'm out to make sure that you'll become exactly that. That's what I'm going to do in you. That's what I'm going to bring you to. The same it is with Jesus Christ. In the book of Luke chapter 4 verse 1, it's Luke writes, and Jesus being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan, was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now this event was talking about the time that Jesus would be led into the wilderness to be tempted and tried of the devil for 40 days and for 40 nights. It was a time of intense warfare, of sacrifice, and even suffering. Jesus had fasted for 40 days. He was hungry. He was tired. He was fatigued. He was weak within his flesh. But notice the words in Luke 4 and 1, Jesus being full of the Holy Ghost. The writer puts emphasis on the fact that Jesus was full of 
of the Holy Ghost. This was the main factor expressed when talking about how that Jesus lived his life in the human flesh. It was always about, when you read about it, was, it was about the power of the Holy Spirit manifested through him. Everything Jesus done in his public ministry, he done by the power of the Holy Spirit. Matter of fact, Acts 10 and 38 says how that God anointed Jesus Christ of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost with power who went around doing good and healing all that was oppressed of the devil for God was with him. How did he uh, heal people that was oppressed of the devil? Because the power of the Holy Spirit anointed him to do it. Everything Jesus done in his flesh was by the power of the Holy Spirit. Isn't that why Zechariah said, it's not by power, but, my, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. Jesus said in Luke chapter 4, verse 18 and 19, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captive, to recover the sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, and to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. All of those things were done by what? The anointing of the Holy Spirit. Everything from the time of Jesus' birth to the time of his death, Jesus lived his life by the Spirit. Did you know he relied upon the Holy Spirit for everything that he done? And matter of fact, the Bible even tells us that Jesus conceived in his mother's womb by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit was there with him even at the time of his conception. It was the angel that told Mary in Luke chapter 1, verse 30 through 35, and the angel said to her, Fear not, Mary, for thou hast found favor with God. And behold, thou shalt conceive in thy womb, thou shalt bring forth a son. You'll call his name Jesus. He shall be great. He shall be called the Son of the Highest. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And then said Mary unto the angel, How shall this be, seeing that I know not a man? And then the angel said unto her, For the Holy Ghost shall come upon thee, and the power of the highest shall overshadow thee. And that holy thing that shall be born in you shall be called the Son of God. He was conceived in the womb from his birth by the Holy Spirit. The Bible even tells us in John 3, 34, for he whom God has sent, talking about Jesus, he speaketh the word of God, for God giveth not the Spirit with measure unto him. Did you know Jesus was given the Holy Spirit without measure? Jesus Christ was full of the Holy Ghost. Can I have an amen? Hebrews 9 and 14 tells us that Jesus went to the cross and he died for us by offering himself up on the cross through the eternal Spirit. The Bible tells us in that in Hebrews 9, 14, how much more then will the blood of Christ through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Can I tell you here today that Jesus could not even have went to the cross if it wasn't for the enablement of the Holy Spirit. He offered himself up upon that cross through the eternal. How many of you could actually die for Jesus Christ today as a martyr? You could only die for Jesus Christ as a martyr only by the power of the Holy Spirit. Because in Acts 1 and 8 it says, but you shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses. That word witness there is a Greek word or term meaning martyr unto me both in Jerusalem, Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the world. That you, in order for you to be a martyr, you can only do it by the divine enablement of the Holy Spirit. Can I have a, everything we do, me getting up here preaching, I got to rely on the Holy Spirit. Jesus couldn't have done it without the Spirit. He couldn't have went to the cross. In his flesh, he prayed, Father, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. I don't want to do this. Do you know Jesus in his flesh did not want to do the will of God? He prayed, God, if there's any way for this thing to pass from me, let it pass. 
His flesh, just like our human flesh, didn't want to face the cross. He didn't want to go through the pain and the agony. He didn't want to feel the rejection, the shame, the spitting, the biting on his flesh with his, their teeth and all the things that went with the suffering on the cross. He didn't want none of that. But listen to what the Spirit says. According to Hebrews 12 and 2, with joy he endured the cross, despising the shame. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Why? Because he'd done it through the eternal Spirit. Only by him. Luke said that Jesus was full of the Holy Ghost. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. Another way to say this, because Jesus was full of the Holy Ghost, he was able to enter into the wilderness. I like that translation a little better. This means Jesus would have never went to the wilderness to be tempted and tried fast in 40 days and 40 nights if it was not for the baptism of the Holy Spirit in his life compelling him to do so. Matter of fact, listen to Mark's take on it. Mark chapter 1 had a little bit better insight in chapter 1, verse 12 and 13. And immediately the Spirit driveth Jesus into the wilderness. And he was there for 40 days and for 40 nights being tempted of Satan. And there was wild beasts there, but also angels came and ministered to him. First of all, in this passage we see that the Spirit driveth Jesus into the wilderness. He was persuaded, he was pushed, he was compelled, he was driven, he was launched, he was shoved, he was dragged. Have you ever been dragged by the Holy Spirit? I felt like I have. Amen. Folks, we need the Spirit because without him we can absolutely do nothing. We are as helpless as lungs is without air. The Holy Spirit is our God. He's our reprover. He's our teacher. He's our educator. He's our protector. He's our witness. He's our power. He's our seal. We go on and on in all the different titles that the Holy Spirit is in our life. If Jesus Christ had to have the Holy Ghost in order for him to accomplish his assignment, how much more do we need the Holy Spirit in this building? The Spirit was with Jesus from conception to the cross, and then he was raised from the dead by the Spirit. From the cradle to the cross to where he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God to be our intercessor, the Holy Spirit was act, actively involved in every aspect of his life. For the, rest, for the first six to seven years of Ezekiel's ministry, he preached judgment against Judah. He talked of Jerusalem and Judah's destruction. He spoke of all of the foreign nations' judgment for their cruel treatment of Judah, Even though God would cause them to be taken into captivity, yet he would judge the very nations that would come against them. And there were seven of them listed. He revealed the idolatry of the temple. You remember in the last sermon, we talked about how that the first time that Ezekiel was carried away, he seen the vision of Jerusalem in the temple. It was, a, it, it was full of abominations. It was a year and two months after his call, so it would have been about five years after his captivity that he went there. And during Ezekiel's first visit, he saw the hidden sin, the pollutions, the idolatry. He seen the abominations of the temple. He seen that the, behind, behind every uh, door that he opened, the darker the sin became. And the abominations grew worse and worse and worse through every open door. Gross immorality, perversion, idolatry, and every evil thing was present in and around that temple. And the God of jealousy was even erected that would provoke God to jealousy over his people. This was the reason for their captivity, and this was the reason for their judgment. However, Ezekiel's second visit to Jerusalem was 21 years after his call, about a year before he dies, and that's where our text is at. However, this time he does not see the temple in gross immorality, but he sees water flowing out from underneath the altar. He sees it forming a river, and that river that flowing out into the streets and going down through making a channel to the Dead Sea, and everything that it touches begins to bloom, 
begins to blossom. It goes into the dead sea that was dead and it brings life and there's fish. Multiple fish begins to populate. As a result, what's that a sign of? That's harvest. That's salvation. That's conversions. Can I have an amen? You know what this is a sign of? That anointing had returned, life had sprung up, revival had come, awakening has happened. One minute he's going through the temple and seeing all the carvings and the images and the paintings and all the little statues and all the different, he even sees the old elders going in and bowing down and worshiping these elders and he sees the pollutions, he sees the sexual sins of the temple, he sees all this filth, but now all of a sudden, 21 years later, he's transplanted there and he walks up and the whole temple is different. He sees revival. He sees life. He sees an awakening had sprung up. As Ezekiel sees his vision, uh, Ezekiel receives his vision and commission in chapter one to become the prophet. And remember the word Ezekiel means, now watch, I'm going somewhere with it. God strengthens. This does not just speak of God strengthening Ezekiel for the task that he wanted him to do to where he would call Ezekiel to fulfill it. But it also reveals what God is up to. He is not out to destroy, but to strengthen. That is always God's will. That's always God's desire. God is not willing that any should perish. All should come to repentance. God does not take delight in removing or disqualifying people in ministry. God is out to bring restoration to that which is lost. And Ezekiel begins to look up and he says, oh my goodness, at first all I could do is preach judgment, but I got a new enlightenment here. There's revival coming to the house. There's hope for the house of God. Amen. For the first six to seven years, Ezekiel prophesies revealing judgment. But the end of his ministry, the last 16 to 17 years of his life, he would spend it and preach on the constellation and the restoration of the temple. Chapter 3 to chapter 29, he deals with captivity and judgment. Chapter 30 to chapter 48, he deals with the restoration and revival. He spent one-third of his life preaching judgment. He spent two-thirds of his life preaching restoration. Ha! Isn't that like our God? It takes a negative and a positive to bring fire. You can't have all good. But isn't it good that the good always outweighs the bad? God always brings about the goodness of God. But through it all, he promises restoration. One minute he calls them scorpions, briars, thorns, impudent, stiff-hearted, a rebellious house. But listen to what he promises Ezekiel 36. But I will give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and you'll do them. God says, when I get done with you, when I get done with everything I'm doing in your life, oh Judah, it looks bleak, it looks cold. You've been in captivity for up to this point, up to 26 years. He said, everything's looking bad, but I want to tell you, this is the promise of what's coming. The promise of what's coming is you may have seen all of the devastation. You may have seen all of the bad stuff and the judgments and the captivity and the carrying away, the burning of Jerusalem and the people killed by the swords and all the things that we preached on a few weeks ago. But when I get done with you, you're going to be a people that's going to have a new heart. There's going to be a transformation of spirit because what I am doing, I'm not, out, I'm not set out to destroy you. I'm set out to save you. Amen. Ezekiel's work would not be in vain. His ministry would be fruitful 
The whole ministry of Ezekiel was for the purpose for Judah to come back and to know God. Listen to this. The central theme of the whole book of Ezekiel is seen in the 70 times that he uses this phrase. 70 times that they shall know that I am God. 70 times through the book of Ezekiel, God says, they shall know that I am God. Before I'm done, they'll know who I am. It won't be an idol that they'll be bound to. It won't be, they won't be caught up in idolatry. They're going to serve the true and the uh, only one living God. It'll be me. The way that they are to come to know God is, he tells us this in the book of Ezekiel. He says, Ezekiel, they're going to come to know that I am God by what they see come out of you that shall come to pass. Working, signs, wonders, miracles, healings, prophecies, once again, will begin to convince people that God is real. God is moving in the land, even in all the chaos and in all the darkness that seems to invade the earth. Right in the middle of all that chaos, Judah once again began to believe in the word of the Lord by the workings of God that's being performed right in their midst. The ultimate goal and the objective of the church is for to know God and to get others to know who God is. He takes no pleasure in taking people out or disqualifying them or judging them. This statement, they shall know that I am God, is used 24 times relating to the punishment of Jerusalem. It is used 24 times relating to the judgment of the Gentile nations that come against Judah. 17 times relating to Israel's restoration and final blessing. So what does that mean? That means that there are 24 different prophecies that God told them about their judgments. And they laughed. They looked at Ezekiel. He was fun to listen to. He had an exciting voice. Remember what we talked about? How that he was like a well-hearsed song and they liked his voice and they liked his charm and they liked who he was, but they were not listening to a word that he said. That's what Jeremiah prophesied about. But here it says 24 different prophecies will come out of the mouth of Ezekiel concerning their judgment and why they're in captivity. Though they won't hear in their rebellious house, imprudent, stiff-necked, and rebellious, yet there'll come a time all of a sudden they'll begin to see one by one those prophecies begin to happen and unfold right before their eyes. And then all of a sudden, this guy is not as crazy as what we think. This guy that done all these weird illustrations, laying on the side for so many days for, to prove we went through all that. I'm not going to get into all that and all the different, to eat the cow dung or, or eat the food that was cooked over a cow dung and all that stuff that we went through. Oh, they liked all of his illustrations. They, they were funny, were entertaining in nature. But the entertainment fell off when the things that he brought through the illustration began to be revealed and the very things he prophesied began to happen. And then the, there were 24 prophecies that went out over the seven different nations. And all of a sudden, they seen that them prophecies begin to be fulfilled. Then all of a sudden, the hard ones came. There were 17 prophecies by Ezekiel, by himself, not counting other prophets, that began to prophesy about the restoration of Israel. 
about them coming back home, about them being able to come back to their homeland. It's a prophecy of restoration. It's a prophecy of forgiveness. It's a prophecy of an awakening. And little by little, though it ain't all happened completely as of yet, I want you to understand. Yes, they have went back home. Things has happened, but the revival that is spoken here has not totally been fulfilled. But they're seeing it right before their very own eyes. God's setting them up. It's going to happen. And it's caused Israel to become, to believe a little bit. Can I have an amen? Remember the word Ezekiel means God strengthens. Ezekiel met him on the banks of a shipping canal. And in chapter 1, he became that prophet. But he remained true and faithful. He may have not been able to go back to Jerusalem, to his homeland on earth. But Ezekiel followed him to the banks of the river of life in chapter 47 of our text. Which proceeds from the throne of God, actually. He's getting a revelation of what John the Revelator said. He actually seen the river of life that flowed from the throne of God. And he's seen it flowing into Israel. History reveals to us that over the past 3,000 years, Jerusalem has been attacked 46 times. It has changed hands 27 times. It's been destroyed seven times. Until 1967, she was ruled by 2,500 years by Gentiles. Until 1948, she was a foreigner to her own homeland. They were scattered to the four corners of the earth, but they began to return back and become a nation in 1948. No other people in history have retained their identity to come back from destruction after 2,500 years, and they become a world power as they are today. If you want a historical proof of God's existence, I submit to you, look to Israel. Amen? What God has done for Israel, God is saying, that's what I'm doing for the church right now. I skip so much of my notes because I don't have time to preach them all. But this is what I do know. Listen to me. What we're going through right now in this dark period of time, all over churches don't know what to do. We've never been in this place. The heavenlies has changed. Direction has changed. People's hearts has changed. Culture has changed. Things are hard. Things are war and rumors of war are all around us. Things are looking bleak. Inflation is going out the roof. Famine in certain parts of our world. All that said that would come. Them are prophecies. And you know what's happening? The world is beginning to take notice. They're beginning to believe. You know what God's doing? God's getting his church ready. Do you not understand? The very thing that he put Israel through, he's putting us through. I'm here to tell you what America's going through is not to destroy us, but it's to save us. And what we're going through right now is some of our best times because God wants to pour his spirit out upon us like never before. Look at our text just for a moment. I don't have time to break everything down, and this is where I actually wanted to get, but the healing waters flowing out of the heart of the temple from the altar is symbolic, as we all know, is the movement of the Holy Spirit. It's symbolic of the anointing. We know that we are the temple of God. That's what Paul said, know you not that ye are the temple of God and the Spirit of God dwelleth within you in the New Testament. And that same stream that is to be flowing out from underneath the altar is to be flowing out in among us. And Jerry Cheney one time called me years and years ago, and he was a pastor down in Parma, Missouri at the time. And he said, I was in prayer this morning over my services. And he said, God gave me a vision. 
And he said, I don't have visions. He said, but this is a very, one of the very few visions I've ever had in my life. I said, well, that's great, Jerry. What's about? And he said, it's concerning you. I said, concerning me? And he said, yeah. He said, God showed me the church. You're the church, the palace of praise. And he said, that church started out like a little bitty trickle. He said, it wasn't even an inch wide. Like a little, like, like a drain, le- a faucet leaking, and I'm seeing the drain, you know, just a trickle. He said, but the, the more I started walking, following the water, it become wider and wider and wider. He said, I could step over it. And then he said, it got to the place I, I could only get across it if I run and jump. And then he said, it got so wide that I couldn't jump across it. And then it said, then all of a sudden, the Lord showed me it turned into the Mississippi River. And he said it was broad and it was big and it was carrying barges and it had wealth on it and it had all kinds of transportation on it and it was bringing life to every part of the continent of the world. There were barges of grain, there was barges of oil, there was barges of supply, and, and it, was, it was just a, it was a productive thing. And he said, and God spoke to me and said, this is the palace of praise. That we're that river. Jonathan Ziegler some time ago pulled me off and set me down. There were many of you there at that camp meeting. He said, God told me to tell you to pray for more rain, more rain, more water, more river, more river, more rain. And he just kept that up, kept that up. Well, it's here, folks. Can I tell you it's here? Look at our text just for a second here. There's one thing that I want to tell you that that that. The God of jealousy has been tore down. The entrance to the north gate is no longer got the God of jealousy there. But now the, the, we see that that river speaks of spiritual cleansing and sanctification from idolatry. The temple's been cleansed. The act of flow speaks of the continual cleansing. It's not a one-time event. Our problem is we come in here and we have a Great Pentecostal service. We think, whoa, we got a good dose. And then we just want to sit down for five months. It's a continual thing. It's a continual flow. It speaks of continual, consistent presence, not a visitation from God here and there. It's a continual presence of God. This speaks of a heart transplant among God's people where God inhabits the place and he doesn't just come by and visit once in a while. It's talking about God putting a spiritual pacemaker in us where he can rule and reign and regulate our walk in the word of God and in his will. Look at the different levels of water. The first level, you don't even notice it. You know why? Because it's the dry ground. There are shoreline experiences where you never experience the water. This is where many Christians are at. They say it's all right for everybody else, but I don't want to get into, get into the flow. They remain carnal, void of understanding, no spiritual enlightenment. They're still, their life is mediocre. There's no life. They're cold and they're dead. Let me just say this, and I'm going to get ahead of my notes. You cannot survive without the Holy Spirit. For the water to do you any good, you got to get into it. You will not and cannot make it without the Holy Spirit. And the carnal mind is, is not subject to God, neither indeed can be. Can I tell you, it, it brings forth death. You can run from it, you can hide from it, you can ignore it, avoid it, but eventually you have to choose because you know why? The Holy Spirit will pursue you until you make a disoy, choice. 
I'm either getting in or I have total rejection. Then there's the ankle deep water. These are the people that are attracted to it, but it's nothing more than a play thing to them. These people love the emotional part of it. They love the feeling, the experience, but they don't want the sacrifice and the burden or the challenge and the true ministry of the Holy Spirit. They always have to have a shout, a dance, a tongue, a prophecy, but the Holy Spirit is more than just tongues and dancing and shouting. It's raw ministry. It's anointing. It's witnessing. It's teaching. It's training, discipling. It's doing the work of an evangelist, doing the work of a pastor, doing the work of a leader, teaching a class. Come on, somebody. The Holy Spirit to them is nothing more than entertainment instead of a way of life. They've been touched but not transformed. They've been stirred but not sanctified. Ezekiel had more than just an acquaintance with the Holy Spirit, but he depended upon him for his ministry, even his very life. The Spirit not only provided experience and stirred emotions, but it also provided strength and it caused Ezekiel to stand even in the toughest of times when things didn't make sense. The next level is the knees. The knees is just those that's trying, they're stepping out, and they're beginning to say, okay, I'm a little skeptic, don't know anything about it, they're new at this thing, they're kind of curious, you might say, curious people. And the next level is the loins. When they finally get to the loin area, the loins speak of productivity, intimacy, and fruitfulness. Productivity doesn't even start until you get loin deep. This is where people are not just curious, but they're in total search, and they're trying the Spirit with all of their heart. They're waiting out. They're looking. They're seeking. They're knocking, and they're in search for more of the Holy Spirit every single day. They're open to what the Holy Spirit wants to do in their life. They represent the hungry, the thirsty, and they are marked by a life of intimacy with the Spirit. These are the ones that that will find God, and they're the ones that will be cleansed and sanctified and set apart. They're going to be blessed because blessed are those that do hunger and thirst after righteousness. They shall be filled. But then there are those that get caught over their head. Waters to swim in. Ezekiel said, I got out there and it was over my head. If there's one thing that I know that there's been times in my life when I got over my head and my dad would always say, son, don't fight the current. Don't resist the current. You'll drown. When we go to Current River, especially, he said, don't ever try to resist. Don't swim against the current. Just let the current take you. Follow. Go at an angle. Get to a bank. And if there's one thing that I know what we need here today is we need to quit resisting the current. We need to get over our head and let the current just sweep us away in the Holy Spirit. Just die out to ourselves. Get over our heads and say, never been here before. I don't know what I'm doing, but I'm just following the current. Whatever that current wants to take me, wherever that, whatever that current wants to do in my life, whatever he wants to bring out of me, that's what I'm willing to do. I'm just following the current. I remember one time we were going fishing, and our camp was quite a ways down from where we launched the boat. We launched the boat in the St. Francis on Butley County, Sodom, and uh, we would float down and camp way downriver on the Stoddard County side. And me and Russell Cornett was there, and John Sells was running the boat, he said, get in, and Russell said, why don't we just swim to camp? And I'm talking a couple miles probably of river, and the river swelled, and it's big, logs are floating down. I said, John, go, and me and Russell's going to swim down. We jumped out in that thing. John, man, it's too high, it's too hard. John can't swim, you know. And he takes the boat, and he's floating along there, and you know, that was the easiest swim I've ever had in my life. 
I just got on my back and I got my built-in inner tube. And I just floated. And that current took me right to my destination. I didn't have to fight. It's a couple miles swim. I didn't even hardly put any effort into it. I just said I just got to veer to the left down here a little bit and I'd dog paddle over. I'd dog paddle over. But if I'd fought that current, I would have drowned it before I got to my destination. And if you resist the Holy Spirit long enough, you'll drown. And God's wanting us to just come to a place where we just say, I'm not happy for just a move here and move there and a touch here and a touch there. There's got to be a consistent river flowing in my life. Amen? I got to get in the current. I got to get over my head. I got to let the Holy Spirit have his way and will in my life. I've got to die out to myself where I'm no longer fighting and try to keep my head above the water. It's not in my own sufficiency. It's not in my own work. It's not in my own ability. Even when I don't even think I can do the things that Christ has commanded me to do, I have to die out to where he can do it through me. You know what the Apostle Paul said in Galatians? When he said, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, not I, but Christ liveth within me, and the life that I now live in the flesh I live by the faith of the Son of God who died and gave himself for me. He said, I don't even live by my own faith. I live by his faith. I don't live. He lives through me. I'm just a dead vessel. He takes me then and does with me whatever he wants me to do. He's Lord. We got to get to that place where we're consumed by the presence of the Holy Spirit. That we're in love with him to the point, carry me away. Do with me what you want to do with me. Cause me to do whatever you want to do. Now, there's times he's going to come along and say, I want you to do this. And the only way that you're going to do it is by him sometimes grabbing you by the head of the head and dragging you and you kicking and fighting. But he can't even do that if you don't have a heart for him, a heart to where you allow him to do that. Amen. My daddy sometimes showed me how to get to place to place. Like I said, he'll get you right here. You ready, Bill? Let's go. Come on. You get smart and I'll put you on your tippy toes. This is what Louise does to Bill about every day. Right here. Go over here and shake this man's hand. Yeah. Come on, let's go over here and do the right thing. Tell her you're sorry. Say, I'm sorry, honey. I love you, baby. You're always right, and I'm always wrong. It's case settled. I cannot live for God in myself. I don't have the capability. I may have the desire. What is the heart? Who can know it? It's deceitful in all ways. I can't even trust my own heart times. I just got to trust in the sovereignty of the Holy Spirit over my life. When I came and gave my life to Jesus Christ, I had to die and say, I can't get there on my own works and my own ability. My big excuse for not living for the Lord in my mid-teenage years, I was a Christian as a young kid all the way up to about 11 years old, 12 years old. Got out of church from about 13 to about 17, 18 years old. 
And my big excuse was, I just can't live it. I don't want to be a hypocrite. I just can't do it. I can't do what's required of me. And yet all along, God's saying, if you'll trust me, I'll take the heart of stone out of your heart. I'll give you a heart of flesh. I'll write my commandments on them, and I'll cause you to do them. I'll do that. You can't do that, can't I do that? The sanctification, the experiences, the love, those moments of transformation, those moments when God comes along and sits on you, those are the times that God's making you and molding you when you think he's being mean. He's actually saving your life. I told you the story many times. This is just a cute story. There's been many, 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 many times in my life worse things than this, of course. Get a call around midnight, 2 o'clock in the morning. I'm sound asleep working at gates trying to pastor a church. And a woman in the church calls, devastated. I can't hear her. She's on the phone crying. Oh, just go, I mean, going on. I thought, what in the world? Slow down. And I, Paula, slow down, slow down. What's, what's wrong? What's wrong? And man, I, I'm getting dressed at the same time because I know something is bad wrong. It's either the family or someone's died. She lived with her mom and dad. She's an older woman and the, none of them were in good health. And I'm just sitting there praying, oh God, whatever this is. And I, for, I, this went on for a good bit. And finally I said, what is wrong? She said, my cat is sick. I want you to pray for my cat. Uh, just a holy anger come over me. I'm flesh, guys. What do you mean calling me at 2 o'clock in the morning to pray for your cat and scare me half to, I think it scared me more than, me, her, me getting all scared and worked up is what really got me upset. So I just said, okay, Paula. And I hung up the phone and I take my clothes back off and get in bed and the Lord said, you're not going to pray for that cat? I said, are you serious? And so I started praying, and he said, well, you're not very reverent tonight about that. It's sincere. Are you not going to get on your knees? Again, are you serious, Lord? So I get out of bed, way up in the middle of the night, get on my knees. That's something you don't know about me, and I, I love you if you're a cat lover, and you got to love me, but I hate cats. <laughs> Despise them. There ain't nothing good about a cat. Yeah, I'll get in trouble if I dig too deep. That's a word of wisdom right there. That's a Holy Ghost speaking right there. And I saw, in the heat of my spirit and in bitterness, I got up, knelt down, and prayed for that cat. I didn't get blessed for it because I didn't have a good attitude, but I wasn't punished for not doing it, obeying him. But... God healed that cat. Just hard things in life that God will teach you. And God spoke to me afterwards and he said, whatever's important to my children, it's important to me. Casting all your care upon me because I care for you. Kent, you have brought some cares before me that's been silly, but I didn't reject them. I sat at the right hand of the Father and interceded that on your behalf. I love you. And everything that's weighing you down this morning, 
God cares for you. When you look at the news of Russia, you look at the gas prices, you look at your check. My wife went to the store the other day. She buys eggs for a certain amount of money, and she come back and told me how much they were. They were over double. I said, do what? And I, I went in there, and I went up to the counter the other day and threw out some groceries. They told me how much. I about fainted. I mean, one little bag. I'm thinking, man, this is hitting home. This is getting serious. And then you hear, well, it ain't over yet. They're expecting now inflation to go another big jump. At least be in it for another at least minimum of a year. Gas prices could get to seven to ten bucks a gallon, they're saying, in places. You hear all the doom and the gloom and the, all that. And yet I hear the still small voice of God. Fear not. Trust me. I'm in charge. Don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. In your very midst of darkness, I'm God. And I'll take care of you. Would you stand with me this morning? <clears throat> it's hard to preach when you can't hear yourself. I'm sorry, folks. But I'm just here to tell you this morning, God loves you. I'm not wanting an altar call where we all come down here this morning together and all of that. I don't feel led to do that. But what I do feel led to do is to convey to you that it's time for you to begin to start opening up yourself. And it's time for you to begin to say, hey, Lord, set upon me. Let me get caught up in the divine current of God. Let me flow with the current. Don't let me be resisting the Holy Spirit. Fill me with the Holy Spirit without measure. Let me understand, even in the dark times, of what you're doing. Give me revelation. Give me hope. Give me understanding of my times. Let me not fall away. Let me not get carnal. Let me not get fearful. Let me not slide away, grab by the cares of this old life, but let me be a man full of the Holy Spirit that can endure my wilderness experience like Jesus did. Amen? With every eye closed and every head bowed just for a minute, I feel led to do this. If you're not a Christian here today, God loves you. There are two people here that the Lord has showed me you want to be saved. Right now is your opportunity. I want you to step out. I want you to come down here and I'm going to pray with you and I'm going to help lead you into the, in the prayer of repentance. You're scared about what's going on in our world and you should be without God. There's no hope without him. It's time for you to make a full commitment. You've not made a full, you've wallowed around with it. You've been that shoreline person. You've stood back and you've observed. But God wants you to make a full commitment today and I want you to step out of your pew and I want you to come down here where I'm at right now in the name of Jesus and then we're going to close. You want to be saved. You want to be born again. You're not a Christian. Hallelujah. Are you that person? You don't fit that.